1678, there was a book published which has become second to the Bible, probably the most popular book in all of Christendom. It had a long title, but part of the title was just simply called, and we know it by that, called The Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. Perhaps some of you have read it. But one of the subtitles in the original version of that was called A Dangerous Journey. John Bunyan, the author of that, knew all too well of the dangerous journey for those who follow after Jesus Christ. By the way, parents, parenthetically, get the book that is an abbreviated book with all kinds of pictures for your younger kids entitled The Dangerous Journey. It's a marvelous little book that you can share with your kids and with your grandkids. But John Bunyan knew about this dangerous journey. You see, he was a pastor, just a a simple pastor in England that all he wanted to do was to lead his congregation and to preach the gospel. Can you believe that the powers that be, the government was somehow intermingled with the church at that time, and they said to John Bunyan, you can no longer preach the gospel to your congregation. And as well as that, your congregation has to shut down. What did Bunyan do as a faithful preacher and a pastor? He continued to gather his flock and preach the word. He was arrested. He had four children. His wife was pregnant with a fifth child. She died. The child was stillborn. He remarried. One of his children was blind. Incredibly hard circumstances. And he spent 12 years in the prison at Bedford. It wasn't like the prisons today. But providentially, God allowed him to write during that time several different books, one of those being The Pilgrim's Progress, A Dangerous Journey. It was an allegory of salvation. For those of you who have read it, you remember that Pilgrim was once in bondage and slavery in the city of destruction. And God providentially opened his eyes and then led him on this journey to the celestial city. And it was a dangerous journey to get there. Now, we go to the Bible because that's an allegory. That's a book. But what's it an allegory of? It's an allegory of salvation. And we go back into the Old Testament, and all through the Old Testament, we see woven in with the historical going on, We see woven into that pictures of the salvation that would someday come through Jesus Christ. One of the clearest pictures of that was the exodus in, in Egypt, out of Egypt. We go back to Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, and we see that God made that promise. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants, slaves there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, 
they shall come out with many possessions. That's a pattern of salvation. And then we see in Exodus 3.8 where it is written, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, the celestial city, the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, it just goes on and on, doesn't it? The Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Mosquito Bites, the <laughs> pagan people, and God was going to give them this land. Now, I want you to see something that these are, and this is where we are today in Ezra chapter 8. It's another picture, it's a new Exodus. And we're going to see that borne out. And how God wants us to have certain things as a part of that being led out. A picture of salvation. And it's always not just about a journey. It's about a destination. It's about both. There are New Agers. People who teach, who delve into New Age. By the way, there are some people who in the last several years who once were preaching, the, I'm talking about preachers, who were preaching the Bible, and somehow they kind of morphed into, I won't get into all of the why I think they did, but they morphed into kind of a Christianized New Age philosophy. One of the most popular, at least he was for a while, was Rob Bell. It was Rob Bell who spread the nonsense, the nonsense that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Folks, it's about both. And if you are not sure of your destination, the journey really is secondary. So be clear on your destination. Well, let's go back and review. Then we're going to jump into the outline that you've got in front of you on the worship guide. We'll look over at the quotes. They're great quotes. We're only going to look at one today. But, but here's where we are. Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. That goes together. You say, now wait, Esther's not in that mix. Well, it is historically. So we came through Ezra chapters 1 through chapter 6 around 540 B.C. Cyrus, the king of Persia, conquered Babylon, declared, this is incredible, that the Lord had charged him with building, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It's identified as God's house. All of the Jewish captives were free to go home. Now, this is, this is significant. All of the Jewish captives, he gave carte blanche, you can go back to your home country. Did they? Only about, out of one million, approximately, Jews in Persia, only about 42,000 returned. They were led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua. And they ultimately rebuilt the temple. And you remember, we covered those first six chapters, and, and the focus was on God restoring our worship. And that's why Ezra is all about restoration, the restoration of, 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 of worship. The rebuilding of the altar, the rebuilding of the temple. Then we had an interlude. Do you remember that? 
And for 10 sermons, we considered Esther. It was a 60-year interlude between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 in which Esther was used. Now, if you'll remember, I'm not going to go back and give a lengthy review of this. I'll summarize. Esther was a messy, very human, but ultimately redemptive story of how God delivered his people. And it wasn't just the temporal deliverance. It was so that the Messiah and his line would be preserved. The establishment of the Feast of Purim, which is still celebrated today. Now, we just started back a couple of weeks ago in Ezra 7, through the end of the book. It's around 458 B.C., give or take. Fifty-five years after the first return, God raised up a faithful priest and scribe named Ezra to lead a second wave. Now watch this, because again, out of the million minus 50,000 or so, 42,000, all of them could go back, but did they? The figures vary, but the best I can tell, an estimate that went back with Ezra in verses 7 through 10 were about 2,000. The rest stayed home, at least their new home, in Babylon, in Persia. Their focus, the temple was rebuilt. And so what was Ezra's focus? We're going to see this again like we did last week. It's on not rebuilding the temple of worship. It's rebuilding the people, getting the Word of God into the people, revival. And then next week, the Lord willing, we're going to see the outcome of that, repentance of the people. Then we move into Nehemiah. This is the third move. The new exodus includes Nehemiah, where 12 years after Ezra, along comes the cupbearer, Jewish cupbearer named Nehemiah, and he was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the Persian king, and he returns with a, a whole new mission that focused on rebuilding the wall. Let me go back to something I said a minute ago. I, 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 I just so pray and hope and wish that you can internalize this. We study these historical books, and we go to the New Testament, and we see the pictures that are portrayed there. But could you for a moment, if you're a believer, now if you're not a believer, you're not, this is not going to connect. But if you're a believer, then you need to try to get in your mind's eye what happened in your own personal exodus. When you were in bondage to sin, in slavery, in exile, and God led you out, you are on the road to your eternal home, the celestial city. You've left the city of destruction, and you're going to the full-on presence of God. Let me give you a couple of verses that really go with that. Just summarize those, compress those together. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us. This is the new exodus in each of our lives, isn't it? Is this your experience? That he has delivered you from this present evil age, this Egypt this Babylon, your own 
slavery to sin. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So you're on the journey, aren't you? Unless you haven't started. And I'll do this at the end, but I might as well do it now. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, never turned from your sin so that you can embrace Him, then today is the day of salvation for you. But if you've done that, let me share with you some things that you need for the journey. And you'll see them enumerated on your worship guide. All right, let's jump in. Ezra chapter 1 Um, we're not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to pick and choose some of these, but I want you to know this. Here's one thing that God has supplied for you. And by the way, he's not only supplied it for you, I want you to catch this. He's called you to be this. Okay. He has supplied leaders, but he wants you to be a leader. Well, I'm not a leader. I'm a kid. Do you have little brothers, sisters? You're a leader. They're watching you. Do you have younger cousins? Do you have a wife? Do you have grandchildren? In other words, we're all in this boat of being a leader as well as looking to God-ordained leaders. Know that God chooses leaders and followers by name. I think this is significant. Ezra chapter 8 verse 1. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. Stop there, because I'm not going to read that. I, I butcher that every time I try to read this genealogy, this list of names of the ancestors. So we're, we're just going to say God raises up, chooses leaders and followers by name. Someone pointed out, this is good. To get to the right destination, you have to have the right leaders. Ezra was the right leader. In a sense, if this is a new exodus, another picture, then Ezra is a new Moses. And I want to go back to something I shared last week. If you'll remember, it's just, it's just a hook. It's, it's a hook that you can hang thoughts on. All right? It's the 7, 8, 9, 10 principle. I hope you remember that from last week, the 7, 8, 9, 10 principle. Well, what is that? That's from Ezra chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10, where it spells out the mission. Ezra had a mission. And then it spells out the empowering for that mission. And then it spells out the thing that is necessary for that mission to succeed. And by the way, that's the way it is for each one of us who is a follower of Christ. If you go back, flip back over in your Bible or scroll down back to chapter 7. If you got it, chapter 7 and look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Ezra 7, 8, 9, and 10. First of all, the mission. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylon or Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. That was his mission. Take a new group of returnees back 
to the house of God, to beautify the house of God. And along the way, what his mission was, was to teach, him the, teach them the Word of God. Well, you've got to have two things. I said this last week. Two things are absolutely essential. They both go together. One is for the good hand of his God was on him. Basically, that's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not saved, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And we're going to read in a little bit what happens to those kind of people. The good hand of God will not be on you for good if you're not a believer in Christ. But if you're a follower of Christ, you need that good hand of God. You need the empowering of the Holy Spirit in your life. But the Holy Spirit does not work in a vacuum. And here is probably, it, it's, it's, one of our, it's our memory verse for our, our Bible reading. For Ezra, verse 10, had set his heart to do three things. Study the law. That's the Torah, the first five books of the, battle, uh, of the Bible. But it, 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 it's the whole Bible for us. And to do it. We don't want to just put knowledge into the hearts of our people or our families, do we? We want that knowledge to be transferred. And for every person, no matter what age, to obey the Word of God. And then, not only that, a third thing is that we desire leaders who will teach it. Study it, do it, obey it, and teach it. Folks, I know that you know this. But let me say it again. There are absolutely no shortcuts to spiritual maturity. Now, if you don't care about being spiritually mature, that's one thing. But I just have this impression that there is a good number of people in this room today and watching online, and there is a hunger to become more spiritually mature. And it's not going to get that way by just wishing it to be so. Now, we know that the, the law of God, again, the expression of the the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, that's a tutor to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to know it, and we need to do it, and we need to teach it. What's your mission? It's a 7, 8, 9, 10 principle. Okay, let me stop here. Either this is just a sermon or this is the Word of God coming to the people of God. And so when I am asking, what is your mission? I'm not really the one asking it. It's God who asks, what is your mission? Now that, that's going to be different for every person in this room. For Ezra, we know what it was because we read verse, uh, verse 8 and part of verse 9. It was to lead the people on this new exodus out of the city of destruction to the celestial city. I keep going back to Bunyan's words because they're so descriptive. So what's your mission? You know, well, I, 
I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I can look around and, and see. I, I know what part of your mission is. I don't know what all of it is. Part of your mission is to be a good grandmother. Part of your mission is to be a good mom. Part of your mission is to be a good worker, the best you can be. Part of your mission is to be a good member of the church, not just because membership is a technical, formal, legal thing, but it's the body of Christ. So, you know, it goes, what is the ultimate mission for which you were created? In everything, that every season of life, what does the Westminster Shorter Catechism say? Question number one, what is the chief end of man? Above all, your mission is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's your mission. But you're not going to get there without the good hand of God being on you, the Holy Spirit filling you. In our ABF class today, we spent the entire time on Ephesians 5.18. What does it mean to be filled with? To, to be directed by, to be controlled under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That is so important. But again, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a void. And let me say this as nicely and as strongly as I can. Some of you are just not giving the Holy Spirit really anything to work with. There are two ways of taking in Scripture. One is through a Bible study method, that, the Bible reading method that we have, we have said you can, you can read through the Bible in a year. That's a great plan. I use that plan, and I love that plan. But we realize that many people, that's going to frustrate them. So we made it a two-year plan. We're just trying to make it accessible. You only read a couple of verses a day, but, but here is the thing that I've discovered, and I've, Jan and I have talked about this before. My, my time for my quiet time, I'm just sharing this with you because this is what I've come to. When I was younger, I wasn't nearly as consistent as I am now. And you say, well, you're a lot older. Do you really need that? I need it more than ever. In my sacred time, for at least five days out of the week is 4.30 to 6.15. You say, that's insane. Find whatever works. I'm not more spiritual than you because I get up at 4.30 in the morning. Okay? But find your time and lock into it. And I find that just reading through, and I have my notebook, and I just have tons of notes. Sometimes I just, after a few days, throw them away or whatever. Use them in a sermon. But then I also am so enriched. You've got to know this. And I told Jan the other day, you know, even when someday, way in the future when I retire, I, one of the things that I really, I want to keep preparing sermons because that makes me dig deep. It makes me drill down. It makes me look at words. makes me, you know, memorize and do the things that I need to do to prepare for a message. And I, I can tell you this. I, I'm the one who benefits more from my preparation to preach to you today 
than anyone in this room. What a benefit. It's the only way I can study the Word. And by the way, it says he set his heart. I pray for the students. I pray for the the, the young adults. I pray for the older adults. You will set your heart to do these things. Not because it's a Baptist thing or a churchy thing, but if you want to be the kind of person that Ezra was, used by God, oh, that is so important. Now, by the way, he also chose good leaders. Let, let's, let's look at this. Would you, uh, are, are you still back in chapter 7? Okay, slide down to verse 27 and 28. I'll go back and say verse 1 again of chapter 8. All it does is say these are the heads of the father's household. But what kind of men did did Ezra choose? Look at verses 27 28 of chapter 7. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all of the king's mighty officers. I took courage... For, here's the Holy Spirit again, the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So that list you see, that genealogy, these were the cream of the crop. He was wanting other men who were going to do basically the same thing that he did. Oh, how important that is. And, by the way, They were known by name. You ever wonder sometimes, why are all these genealogies in there? Well, I think we'll see it in just a moment. It's important for you to know that God knows you by your name. Look at the second thing, verses 15 through 20, back in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra made sure, boy, this is a huge one. Ezra made sure that everyone was there and that no one was missing. Good leaders do that. Every believer is necessary for ministry. Two different things going on. Verse 15, read along with me. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, the Levites were necessary for temple worship. They assisted the priests. So Ezra knows if he goes back, if he's taking this group back, and there are no Levites, there's not going to be any worship. That's the way it worked back then. But we're going to jump up and talk about ministry in the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, so I sent for, then it names off, interesting, 12 guys. What are they called? Leading men. Now, I think that's twofold, okay? I think it doesn't just mean leading men like they were first in importance. I think it means men who were able to lead in the things of God. Also, in the last part of verse 16, who were men of insight. Verse 17, very last part of that, to send us ministers for the house of of our God. Verse 18, by the good hand of God, by the good hand of God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. 
And then at the very last of verse 20, they were all mentioned by name. God knows your name. Is that, is that a big deal? I, I, and there are other guys, other people in this church. I work at knowing people's names. And it's not so you'll like me. It's so that, and, and this, is, this is what happens. By the way, as I get older, I have to work a whole lot harder. When I, seriously, when I was, I, I'm just sharing with you it's just the way God wired me. When I was younger, I, I, I really, it was not a problem. Jan remembers numbers. I remember names. Boy, that works. She'll say, now, who, who is that? I sometimes forget. Well, I, I know my number. I know her number. I don't know Katie's number or Jackson's number. I have to ask her, what, what's the number? It's important to know names. It's amazing how that I'll walk up to somebody and I'll say, hello, I'll mention their name. Maybe I haven't seen them a lot or maybe I don't know them well, but guess what they say? Guess what they always say? Guess what you say in that situation? You remembered my name. That's earthly that, that's, that's of some importance. But I want you to remember that God knows your name. He never forgets. Look at this. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Now watch this. We're going to go from greater to lesser. The Bible often does this. He who brings out their host by number. What's he talking about? Calling them all by name. What's he talking about? The stars, how many stars are there? How many planets? How many heavenly bodies are there? It can't be numbered. But he knows everyone by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power. And look at this, not one is missing. He knows them. And then he brings it down, narrows it down. Thus says the Lord God who created you, O Jacob. He who forms you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Why? Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. And this is the mark of a good leader. And I just have to confess, there are times when somebody has been missing for a while. Sometimes I call and sometimes I just, I put it off, let it go. And, and that, that's wrong. I, I just confess that to you. And this was so incredibly encouraging and convicting to me because good leaders know who's gone, know who's missing. Someone shared with me today, have you seen so-and-so? I haven't. And if you look around, see now, it's not just leaders like me, it's leaders like you. And if you look around and you see somebody is gone, and you, you know they're missing, I, I just encourage you to give a call. Maybe they'll tell you something you don't want to hear about heritage. About half the time, that's why I don't like to call sometimes. 
I don't like you and I don't like the church. And well, no, they don't they don't say it like that. They're a lot nicer, but that's that's what they mean. <laughs> sometimes. Not all the time, sometimes. Oh, the Lord's moved us on. And I, I get it. I realize that. I'm not I'm not debating that. But they need to know, and I need to say to them, and sometimes when I do call them, I say, look, I get it. It's okay. I just want you to know I've missed you. We would be a lot better church if I did that more. Our elders seek to do that. We go through the list and we call. And we send out to each other prayer requests from those calls. Perhaps you've gotten a call from an elder. That's intentional. They do love you. God knows who you are. God places leaders who will do that, men of insight, men of discretion, ministers of the house of God. See, you and I are pilgrims. We're like, we're like the, the pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress. And guess what? You say, well, I'm not a minister. I beg to differ. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, people, a people for God's own possession. So why? So you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, some of you at home, I just want to say to you again, I, I get it. And some of you are deeply concerned. Some of you, I'll put it this way, okay? And this is true. I'm not just blowing smoke. You're providentially hindered. But I'll tell you this, your heart is bent toward the time that you can come back and be with the body of Christ at Heritage. If it's not, then I am deeply, deeply concerned about you. Ezra 8, 21 through 23. Let's, let's move on. Wow. Our church needs all of these things. And I'm just, I'm kind of up here, <laughs> you know, telling you these, these, these things that we really do need. And we need this. Ezra 21, 23, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava and we, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. This is really pretty good. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Why? Because he had been bragging about God. He'd been saying, God is the one who protects us. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is good. This is so huge. Please, 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 please see this. The hand of our God, the Holy Spirit, is for good on what group of people? All, some of you just said all, not all people, all who seek him. And then he gives the other side. God's hand is against 
Another group, his hand is for you. His Holy Spirit is with you if you are one who seeks him. But if you're not, the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And you say, wait a minute, I don't either seek him or forsake him. I'm just kind of somewhere in the middle. Through, throughout the Bible, please, throughout the Bible, God never gives a neutral zone. He doesn't let you stand in the median, deciding if you're going to go north or south. You're either with him or you are forsaking him, it says. He puts those two in opposition. His good hand is on all who seek him. Even if you seek him just in the tiniest way, you've got that bent, I call it that bent toward the things of God. His hand, his good hand is on you. But if you're bent the other way, if you never seek him, you're in that group that it is said of you, you forsake him. I would plead with you today. If you find you're in that group that does not seek him, that forsake him, please cry out to God. Ask Him to give you that bent. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to give you repentance and to give you faith. Really, I, this is not rhetorical. Which one do you want? And this is what said Ezra, apart from the crowd. Now, okay, what we're talking about here is Fasting. And again, I was brought under conviction. I, I, in the past, I have had regular times and seasons of fasting. I, I do still on a more limited basis than I used to, and I had all kinds of thoughts this last week. What do I say to the church about fasting? Well, I'm just going to say what the Bible says about fasting. Isaiah affirms it. And he talks to the, to the people of Israel. He, he assumed that they're going to fast. Look at this. This is the fast that I choose. And, and he gives some of the, the, the details. He gives how, how fasting should be regulated in Isaiah chapter 58. But we're New Testament, right? That's why in Matthew 6, three times, he says different things and he parallels those. Is a believer supposed to give? Yeah. Is a believer supposed to pray? Jesus didn't say if you pray. He said when you pray, is a believer supposed to fast? So from that I gathered that individually there should be a challenge to all of us to at least for the sake of setting apart ourselves for God to proclaim a fast from time to time. It might not be food. Maybe you're unable to do that for medical reasons. I'm going to look over here. You know what it might be, students? It might be that you fast from Xbox so that you can give your attention, seek the Lord with all of your heart. 
phone. Listen, adults, do you have distractions too? It may be good to seek the Lord in fasting. Ah, but there is precedence. Now, this is a historical, this is narrative, it's not a command. But at least we know that the New Testament, when they had important decisions to make, they fasted and prayed, particularly in the, in, in, in the subject of choosing leaders. So I encourage you, in the next two weeks, you proclaim a time of fasting so that we will know the will of the Lord in terms of the land sale, and for sure in the days ahead, whenever that might be, when we are calling leaders to come among us and help. Last thing, then we take the Lord's Supper, okay? Wow, this is incredible. Stewards, uh, a steward of God's provision and people are set apart uh, for the Lord's work. We need to be good stewards. Okay, I'll just share this last verse with you. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Now, this is an incredible section. And unless you've, unless you've dug down a little bit, you may not realize what they're saying. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests. Why? To be stewards. So we're all stewards of, of the manifold gift that God has given to us. I weighed out to them the silver and the gold. I would love to have been there to see this. You'll see why in a minute. And the vessels, the offering for the house of our God, that the king and his counselors and his Lord, lords and all Israel there present, present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver. Do you know how much that is? 650 talents of whatever, gold or silver, but here it's silver, is 24 tons. That's two 10-wheel dump trucks full of silver. That's about three African elephants, which each weigh seven tons. That's a lot of silver. And then he goes on to uh, a silver vessels worth 200 talents. By the way, talent was 75 pounds. So that gives you some idea of how much it was worth. 100 talents of gold, which is more valuable than silver. 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 uh, derricks. Two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. So, so all told, he, he divvied up for these guys to take to Jerusalem about 48 to $50 million dollars. It is required of stewards. <laughs> Do you think it's true? Twelve guys divvying up that much money? Do you think it was important that they be trustworthy? Now, hang on to your spiritual hats. Is your salvation worth more or less $50 million? Pastor, you can't, you can't put a money value on it. You're right. It's required that stewards be trustworthy, faithful. Is your relationship with your spouse worth more or less than $50 million? 
Parents, would you sell one of your children for $50 million? Don't answer that. <laughs> it depends on what particular day. <laughs> Not on your life. You have been given, and we look at these amounts of money, we oh, wow, that's it. You have been given so much more. And Ephesians 1 talks about our inheritance beyond our wildest earthly dreams of any wealth. And it's important that stewards be trustworthy. And I'll just end with that. We pray that God would make us men like Ezra and the other leaders, that he would make our church that way too, and that we would get ready for the journey. The time may come when they come and say, you've got to close your doors, you've got to quit preaching. It's becoming that way in Canada. What will happen when they come? What are we going to do? We're going to keep the doors open. We're going to keep on preaching. That's not bravado. Just simple obedience, trusting God for the outcome.